good morning, good evening, good afternoon, depending on where you are on this fast forward planet, which is uh, immersed in turbulence of all kinds, geopolitical, climatic, social, information. Turbulence is probably the biggest of all. And that's why I'm really glad today to have uh, Hannah Ritchie come on the show. Uh, what I call a data-driven sustainable, she's a data-driven sustainability guide in a belief-driven world. And that's a problem for any of us who are trying to um, foster progress using data or um, as journalists do, trying to you know get to the realities or, or amid all the perceptions and, and conflicting arguments. Hannah is uh, the lead researcher, lead scientist at um, Our World in Data, which is I can't, it was a, quite a number of years ago when I started watching that that web effort grow. And it's just been a fantastic force for rational thought and, and hopefully for action. Uh, and Hannah has slipped in some time to be on uh, Sustain What Today to talk to you all about uh, her learning curve and the, uh, it, the uh, content of the book a little bit, but I wanna focus more on the, the bigger picture. What do we do with this information too? So Hannah, it's just great finally to meet you. I, uh, and uh, congratulations with everything that's been underway so far. No, thanks for having me on. And like I've, I'm a big fan of the the podcast, and I've watched a lot of previous episodes, and and learned learned a ton as well. So yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Well, that's great. Um, I want to start with uh, just a little bit about your your journey and your current work uh, before the book um, came about. Uh, you're at, as I said, our world in data, which is based at Oxford. And uh, Max Roser, I'm not sure how it got formed there. I, I wanted to get Max on years ago, but we never quite found the time. So could you just give a little quick sketch of what this is and why it formed at Oxford, why it's not more like a Wikipedia? It's kind of like a Wikipedia, but with a very much of a focus on these issues that we care about for, for sure. Uh, how did it come about it from your understanding? Yeah, so it was founded by Max Roser, and his background is is as a researcher. Um, he was doing a postdoc at Oxford at the time, and his research area was global poverty and inequality. So he's an economist, and I think kind of where it started to stem from was this realization that this disconnect between what he perceived many of the big global trends to be doing and what they were actually doing. And, right. and often, even despite, you know, being an economist and working in, in for years in, in global poverty and inequality, like even by the end of university, like many of these trends, he he thought they were going in the opposite direction and they've, they've been going in, in the other direction. Right. So I think I think part of that drive stemmed from this, this understanding that, uh, you can only really understand the world by stepping back and looking at the data and just this no one was really having these conversations or at least these conversations were not as widely had as he wanted so he started you know building this website in the background uh like the beginnings of our own data and, and really the concept of our own data is what we we look at as what we frame as the world's largest problems and that's not just environmental problems although we right. cover that a lot but also health, poverty, inequality, war, like all of these like, massive problems that the world faces. Uh, and, and what we try to do is to, to bring to the fore the, the data and research we think we need or the world needs to understand these problems and start to work towards solutions. So I think we we kind of... You must, sit... feel, you must feel like you're in overload mode completely 24-7. And, and I saw that, that picture shows, I don't know, seven or so people. How, how many 
people are involved. It's grown a lot over the last few years. So when I joined, there was four. And for a long time, there was just four or five. Actually, by the time COVID hit, there was only five of us. And then we started undertaking, trying to, to gather and present the global data on COVID. And, and, and over the last few years, we've grown a lot. So now we're around 25. Um, yeah. And that's that's a mix of, of researchers, data analysts, and also like web developers. I think that's like kind of right. key to our own data is that we, we have this kind of interdisciplinary mix um, where kind of the, the amazing graphical tools that the web developers build allow the, the work of the researchers and data analysts to come to life. So I think we, we're quite unique that we have this like nice interdisciplinary team. But yeah, we've grown a lot uh, kind of post-COVID. Yeah, well, it's uh, that's good then. It's good that the resources are there. We'll talk about that uh, more in a minute. And one of the pictures, uh, I, I have a couple of graphs here that kind of illustrate um, one point that you make right at the beginning of the book, uh, which is that the work of Hans Rosling and, and Roser and others has revealed that human circumstances have largely been improving, but environmental issues, uh, you know, species loss and the like uh, uh, are diverting in different ways. And that that's sort of where you come in and where the book kind of zooms in. I think it's important to, to make that point too. Um, so you have the book and you now also are on Substack, like I am, um, which is great. I see you, you've generated or gained a lot of following there. It's fantastic. Um, and I'm sure we could talk forever about how you how you fit this all into your workday, but I want to be sure people understand. It's called sustainabilitybynumbers.com. And so that's great too. You've had your TED talk and, you've, and Bill Gates, uh, who has been a supporter of um, our world and data through his foundation is uh, a fan as am I. Uh, so it's been a quite a moment for you. Um, although I think, you know, we have, I want to ask you, do you feel like you're at the beginning of something? Sometimes people get a book out there and it's like, okay, done. <laughs> you know, my message is out. I've got my TED talk. I don't know how many views. Do you feel like it's done or do you feel this is just like step one down a long road? No, I think it's still step one. I think what I kind of wanted to to do with the book is to shift the narrative a bit on what I see as narrative, like narrative and discussion around environmental change and environmental solutions. Right. So I think what I wanted to do with the book was one, to acknowledge, as you said earlier, this this kind of seesaw of human progress and environmental degradation, which in the past has almost been always at odds with one another, right? The environmental damage has basically come uh, as a result of human progress. But trying to change that narrative a bit to, to provide a vision of how we move forward, achieving both of these things at the same time. And I actually really think, you know, we are reaching the stage where these things are no longer incompatible. Like I think you can improve human well-being while reducing environmental impact. So that was part of the notion of the book was to to shift this narrative a bit towards you know less of you know almost I think almost environmental action is, is framed as like damage limitation and it's just things will inevitably get worse. We just decide how bad it's going to get. And I want to shift that a bit towards saying, no, we actually can build a better future, 2050, 2060, 2070. Um, but I think in order to do that, you need a little bit of an image of what that positive future might look like. So so I think, yeah, I think that was my kind of first stake in the world was trying to prevent present this positive vision. But like it's not done. <laughs> the point no, is we yeah. need, no, we need to actually make that vision a reality. And that's kind of what I'm trying to work on now. Yeah. 
and in a minute we'll get into some of the meat and mashed potatoes in the book. I did want to get in a little sketch about how you came to be who you are so far. Um, and I, I think it's important, especially in the context of our education system and and how we can possibly uh, foster the, uh, the the prospect of having many more uh, Hannah Ritchies. So, so you you were at the University of Edinburgh as you lay out in the book when you I think you were, you were 16 when you started there, which is pretty pretty cool. Um, and like many universities, it's you know ferment of positivity, negativity, uh, all kinds of things. So tell us a little bit about these moments that kind of brought you to this this method methodology and practice you have now. And there's key people like uh, um, um, uh, um, um, Rosling and um, and other authors who caught your your attention. Again, you you mentioned some of these folks in your book. Yeah, so I started at Edinburgh University. And I studied environmental sciences. So I did environmental geoscience, then climate change management, and then I, did, then I did a PhD. I think Edinburgh, I think, was a great place to study. But I would still say that by the end of my degree program, you know, I was feeling pretty depressed about the state of the world. Um, I think there was just studying environmental sciences was just an onslaught of, of, of very legitimate bad news all the time. And yeah. I think... The other issue I had at the time is that I was really looking at the news religiously. And I think I had this notion that to be a responsible citizen, I had to be checking the news all the time. And especially in an environmental context, you know, if I wasn't watching what the latest disaster was and kind of trying to take that on myself, I wasn't caring or or I didn't care about what was happening in the world. So I think there was this combined effect of always just looking at this negative stuff on environmentalism but then also just seeing disaster after disaster on the news and maybe we can talk about that but the we effect will. that that has is that you just then get this onslaught of thinking that everything must be getting worse and worse and worse because that's all you're seeing and and i think the the issue i had there is is that i was only looking at environmental metrics but i was just assuming all of the human metrics were also getting worse right so poverty child mortality hunger even deaths from natural disasters just must be like the highest level ever and just going worse and worse and worse um right. but then i discovered the work of hans rosling who's who's on the screen now and he didn't really focus on environmental metrics but what he did do was was bring the world human progress to life through the use of data so he would do these amazing talks where he'd, he'd show how the world has changed over the last few centuries through the use of data and what he would always show is that all of the metrics that most of us assume to be getting worse have just been gotten dramatically better and then you know other stuff i was i was so ignorant of this stuff like i all of the questions that he asked i would have obviously got wrong <laughs> i think that was like a little bit of a wake-up call the quiz yeah. he used to do uh was really something. Um, yeah, compared to the. So that really jarred you, and was that after you finished college or while you were still there? I think it was between my bachelor's degree and bachelor's degree and master's degree. So it was it was definitely to like by the end of my my bachelor's degree, and then I was starting to move on to something else. And I think that that started to give me a little bit of a shake of oh, like maybe this some of the stuff I've got wrong or I don't quite have a good understanding of and I think it also just highlighted to me the power of data um the yeah. fact that you just you cannot understand the world through media headlines and you actually need to step back and look at the data 
And then I think over time, just to touch on the last few things there, I think the the over time I then became familiar with the work of people like Mike Berners Lee or or David Mackay, which they very much focused on on energy and, and and climate change. But what I really liked about their work is that they 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 based it entirely on data. So the carbon footprint. How do you understand the carbon footprint of different stuff? Don't just go on your gut. Try to put numbers on it. And the same with David Mackay on energy. How do you understand, you know, decarbonisation plans or solutions? You need to start to put numbers on it and understand it. So I think that those two individuals also kind of sparked to me, yeah, I want to understand these problems through the use of data. Yeah, boy, Berners-Lee is interesting. I, I only was poking around and realised he's the, he's the brother of Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the, the web as we know it. Uh, there's something about that family that's worth checking in on. Uh, for sure. Um, so let's get into the, the book. Um, you, you focus very much on these compartments or themes that, that the environment has been subdivided into historically. Um, but you start out with uh, your an important, I think, definition of sustainability historically is has two parts. And it's how do we supply and support and have a thriving generations now equitably, fully across the landscape and what do, what do we do about the future, people in the future? Uh, so just talk briefly about your definition of sustainability and definition of success, essentially, which then the book kind of lays out. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the, the definition of sustainability I use in the book is very close to what people would frame as sustainable development, right. which is that sustainability there has kind of two key goals or as I frame it two key halves the second half is what we more familiarly think of as sustainability which is basically having a low environmental impact to protect opportunities for future generations and I also include other species on that as well so that's really focused on how do we reduce our environmental impact and then the first half of the equation is is we also want to provide a good life for the people on earth today right it's, it's not enough right. to just say I mean, yeah, we could just massively cut our environmental footprint and live really, really poor lives, but that's not what we want. We want to make sure that everyone has a high standard of living while doing that at the same time. Right. The key point I make there is that you haven't really achieved sustainability unless you've achieved both of these things at the same time. On the argument I make is that historically, we've actually never achieved both at the same time. As I said earlier, there's kind of been the seesaw where environmental metrics might have been quite good or low, but often human well-being standards were very low. Over the last few centuries, we've seen that tip the other way, where we've seen lots of progress on, on human development, but it's largely come at the cost of the environment. And the, the, the theme of the book is how do we do both of these things at the same time? Because I actually think we can, or we are moving towards a world where it's possible that we can do both uh, halves at the same time. Right. And and that does generate some of the tensions uh, including around issues like energy sufficiency for those who have hardly any energy yeah. access now uh, and also constraining greenhouse gases. Um, uh, and that's a position that uh, uh, Jan, uh, that Rockstrom, Johan Rockstrom has made, but never really has been heard. He, he's made the point, even at the climate talks, that that this equity issue is key. Uh, and it's a source of tension, and it just means that the rich world has to do more. But then people kind of put their head, their hands over their ears for some reason. I think you're, you'll probably be getting some of that if you already haven't. Um, but but it's certainly to me part of my definition, and we'll see what people think as they 
as they listen to this this, this webcast uh, later too. Um, I was I just was going I put up a slide just to say you do make some decisions about what not to include. Uh, uh, it's not about the full set of risks, some of which I've written about. You know, you know uh, everything from asteroid collisions to to what's Putin going to do with his nuclear weapons to COVID coming back or the next pandemic. So how did you make your cut? Like, how do you kind of decide what not to? Because it could be a very big enterprise. Sure. I mean, I mean, I'm very much just focused on environmental problems there. Like, of course, there's yeah. a really long list, like a bunch of health problems that aren't there, conflict, AI, yeah. nuclear. Yeah, I couldn't cover. Also, the, the the focus is very much on on environmental problems. Yeah, and that the issue of um, you do have a section in, in the book, and you talk about this question of who is the we, and, and this is something mm. I I talk about and think about a lot. Although not, I think it started for me about ten years ago. That I started to realize I use the word "we" a lot in my talks, and and it's really important to ask like, who is that? How much of that is about the future? Uh, how much of it's about people who don't have a microphone? And and so, can you talk about that that aspect of this too? It's another part of the two halves: is the half that is already privileged and the half that is silent for, because they're not born yet or because they're in uh, Ethiopia. Right. Yeah, no, I struggle like I, I, I struggle with a lot and actually we had lots of backs and forwards with my editors on on how to define this. I mean I, and the subtitle is 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 framed as a first generation and we have even had debates of like what's a generation? Because there's multiple generations alive right now and it's not the case that you know only right. one generation has to put an effort and the others don't. So I, I tried to broaden the concept of generation as just like people that are alive today. Um yeah, that's which good. is not quite correct. But yeah, I think the we is an important question one depending like one is the inequality issue today and 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 by we uh no we have to take action is not the same for me versus someone in a really low-income country that has right. co2 emissions of almost zero and the emphasis on we is is me <laughs> but i right. wanted to the reason i try to use this more collective we which does have issues obviously is that what i also hope to do a little bit with the book and my my work more broadly is to try to not create lots of really hard divisions, which I see all the time. And I see this, you know, it's young versus old, it's rich versus poor, right. it's left versus right, it's deniers versus different. Like there's there's so many, you know, artificial lines being drawn where it's a kind of us versus them concept. And I, I think this is really damaging for us trying to build solutions. So I use we as a try to like more of a collective, you know, I think this is a, a global problem that requires international cooperation. And it really involves most of us to get involved. It does indeed. Um, so it, when you think through the, uh, the different areas, overfishing, plastics, forests, wood, um, and the rest. What are the key? What are the themes that emerge? Uh, I, I think one, of course, is that data is valuable, uh, and I think one of the things that gives me great optimism these days is the um, the increasing potential, rapidly increasing potential to verify trends around the world using remote sensing or other means uh, that weren't even on the, weren't even conceivable uh, ten years ago. Global Fishing Watch is one I've written about. Mm. You know where. Yeah. So not only it's not just existing demographic data or data from the FAO on you know exports of food, but it's this landscape of uh, Greg Asner's work, uh, Arizona State now using uh, overflights with planes that can 
not just tell you how much forest is there, but how much carbon is in the canopy. So does that excite you to the, the, you know, the idea that this isn't just some static review of data, but that, that we're creating a planet that's much more visible? No, definitely. And I think I think one of the key issues we encounter our own data is either the lack of data or the poor quality of data that's there. So this is a question of how do you build as accurate a view of the world as possible through data, knowing that some of it's incorrect or some of it's hidden or there's just no data there at all. And I actually right. think over the next 10 years, we'll see actually really rapid developments and the, the quality of data that's there, the the cost of attaining data, I think for many countries it's just too expensive to to invest in, in, in gathering data, even though it would be really useful. So I think I think this will just massively improve and I think we'll just massively improve our understanding. I think what's also just an issue for data is also the the frequency of updates. So often you're trying to understand the world today based on, you know, the latest data where the latest data is 2011 <laughs> and actually right. the speed by which you can get this almost real-time data on trends like deforestation or emissions or air pollution will just have a really profound impact on how we respond right okay and another thing another theme that emerges in the book chapter by chapter is the importance of thinking um, systemically hmm. it's not just acres of palm oil eight acres of oil palms could you talk about I have up on the screen plastics and, and palm palm oil, and they both have this, again, your chapters have this important, uh, you, 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 you keep pushing the point, and, and I think it's essential that um, you don't just look at the thing, you have to look at the system. So talk about systems thinking as, as it relates to your book. Yeah, I mean, I think in in many areas, but especially environmentalism, you know, we, we like to have a villain. And, and and we try to find out, you know, this is the bad thing. This problem will be solved if we just get rid of that bad thing. And I think there are, you know, examples of this like palm oil. And by the way, I was in this camp previously. If you'd asked me, you know, what do we need to do to envy deforestation? It's like, let's all buy palm oil. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the key point there is not that palm oil hasn't had a really profound impact on the environment, right? It has led to significant amounts of deforestation in Indonesia, and especially in Malaysia, where most of the world's palm oil is produced. So it's not that it isn't a problem, but if you're trying to find a solution to that problem, just the 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 catch-all, we should just boycott palm oil and move to something else, doesn't right. take into account, you know, where that other vegetable oil is going to come from. The the positive and maybe also the downfall of palm oil is that it's a really productive crop, like per hectare compared to other vegetable oil crops, you can get like five to 10 times as much oil. Yeah, what that amazing, means- yeah. The book has an amazing graph showing that, that distinction. Yeah, so it's super productive. And what that means is that if you were to try to produce this same amount of vegetable oil from another crop, basically what that means is that you would need to use a lot more land. And depending on the crop you use, you might just actually increase deforestation, but dis displace it elsewhere. So I think when you try to think about these problems, I think it's important to factor in not just, you know, what's the direct impact, but what would the counterfactual be? Or what would the system's impact be of, of switching from one case to another? So when I looked into, you know, what experts on this were saying about the palm oil problem, 
very few or actually none were really saying this solution here is boycotts. What they were saying is we just need much stricter standards on how to produce palm oil sustainably. Like how right. can you reap the benefits of the high yields without sacrificing the downsides of the environmental damage? And that's, uh, for me, to me, that's what we should be, be working towards, not this kind of catch-all, let's just stop using palm oil. And, and that all relates to quality of data, uh, verification, uh, you yeah. know, supply chain integrity is a key, right? Because you want to know if that yeah, end product yeah. is coming from A or B is a very important question, right? Yeah, so the, the, the RSPO, the uh, Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil, um, is a kind of certification scheme, but that's, that's, that's based on, you know, having data and be able to track whether these standards are being made been met and, and maintained over time i think again when it what you know some case for optimism there is i think um a number of countries now are trying to set up much more transparent methods for for calculating the deforestation that, that comes from imported food so i've seen france do this i think maybe the uk also does this there's yep. this program called trace earth which tries to to basically map the imports of different products and link that back to potential deforestation that's happening. So I think all of this development and monitoring and, and reporting of data will only increase the transparency and increase the pressure on on different actors to 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 fulfil the promises. Absolutely, um, and talk about plastics a little bit too, because there's a big chapter on plastics, obviously. Yeah, so the, the 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 problem I focus on for plastics in the book is is ocean plastics or or plastics right. leaking into rivers and the ocean. I'm quite clear that uh, I don't have the solution to the potential microplastic health problem for which we actually just don't know what that problem is or what the scale yeah, is. Yeah, that, that could yeah. I, I've done other shows on that and we'll do more. Uh, yeah, I'm showing here. There's a company in. Uh, Lombok in Indonesia that I, I interviewed the guy who runs this little company, Honest Ocean. They're trying to get at the source in, in Asia, in Indonesia, particularly in some rivers and waterways. This this was a canal that was opened, uh, an irrigation canal that just was a mind-boggling thing to see. Um, you know, stuff that had accumulated in a, in a lake over time um, was flowing through this. Um, and I guess this too gets at the reality that it's waste we're talking about, right? Not so much plastic production or there are very, there are lots of uses for plastic that are, are vital still, uh, maybe not in that canal. Right. Yeah. I think the, the, I think the issue I have with some of the discussions around plastic is that we know that plastic um, pollution is a problem, but the often the solution or the focus of the solutions is, you know, how do we just use less plastic? Actually, that might not even tackle the problem. It's the problem there is really a lack of waste management infrastructure. If you are producing plastics and 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 managing it at the end of the chain, putting it in a sealed landfill or a recycling center or incineration, it's not leaking into the rivers and not leaking into the ocean. And I think the too much of the focus has just been on how do we just stop using plastics and less focus has been on how do we just invest and improve waste management infrastructure at the end of the chain so that the right. stuff isn't leaking out into the environment. Right. Well, again, uh, uh, I encourage people to, to to get the book and look through it and uh, and discover these uh, these solution paths. Uh, your, your latest uh, blog entry was about nuclear, un understanding of nuclear energy and uh, the energy, there's a whole section on energy in the book. 
and this gets us toward a, this, a, a bit of a transition toward uh, the beliefs, the word about beliefs. And I put up this slide sometimes when I'm speaking about these issues uh, because it's got Bill McKibben and Jim Hansen, both of whom I've been on the same trajectory with, you know, all these decades. And um, they have fundamentally different beliefs about nuclear energy. They're both committed to the, the climate fight. Uh, Jim Hansen, the climate scientist, famous climate scientist, he once called the idea of rapid expansion of renewable energy. Uh, if you believe in that, you believe in the tooth fairy. This is Jim Hansen. And of course, uh, when Fukushima hit Japan, Bill McKibben wrote a column saying it shows nuclear power is too brittle. He's kind of migrated a little bit toward uh, eh, some nuclear, yes. Uh, but this gets at the, you know, every, all the information you're presenting to the world through your blog uh, and that I do, you know, as a journalist, uh, communicator, um, gets into this arena where our beliefs filter, sort us out. <laughs> as you were saying earlier, as either yes people or no people or on, on whatever the thing is. And it's not even just climate denial. Here we have nuclear denial of one. If you believe in one of them, you don't believe in the other. So are you, how are you finding your path here in, in this world where even as your survey that you, 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 you document here in your blog shows um, most people don't understand the emissions uh, of uh, nuclear energy. So, so what's, what's your, how do you stay sane? As I said in some tweet earlier, as, as you're trying to push forward into this kind of arena. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not going to lie that sometimes it can be frustrating. I mean, the fact that you know surveys suggest that you know less than half of people in the UK know that uh, nuclear is a low carbon source of energy. I mean, there are various other you know points that you can argue on nuclear around around cost or construction time, but you know the fact that it's low carbon is really <laughs> not on the list of stuff we need to to be debating. But I actually think. Well, I get frustrated a little bit at times. I think, I think I still have some sense of optimism that most people don't hold their views as strongly as we might imagine. I think we imagine most of the population just have really strong beliefs about everything, including everything within the climate and energy space, and they just won't budge. And I actually just don't believe that to be true. I think there are particular tribes where there's no data I could show them no discussion I could have of them that will shift their position, and that's fine. But I actually think they're probably a minority. I think for the large bulk of the population, they don't have time to study what's you know what's the deal with nuclear energy or you know what's the mineral demand for electric vehicles. They're just they just they're interested. They're potentially interested in the issue. They have questions about it, and and I actually think it's our job to put out good information. And disseminate it widely so that people can 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 get a better grounding on these issues. Um, so that's kind of what I'm trying to do is is to put out just really clear information. What does the data research tell us on this? And and I I think there's often this this narrative that you know facts or data don't do anything to change anyone's mind. And I just don't think that's true. I think, again, for some people, you know, they're so staunch in their beliefs that yeah, that is true. But I think for most people, they're just curious and they're just open and, and they're actually deserve us to have like a good conversation where we can communicate this clearly. Yeah, I think that's true too. Uh, unfortunately, in the social media space, the ones who are locked in on these hard edge positions tend to be the dominant uh, voices, uh, and this goes 
back before social media. I'm, uh, I used to, uh, you know, in, in my print journalism days, the people who write letters are people who are highly motivated <laughs> and have a position. And the people who are just read, you have, I had to, I would tell journalism students and you know, like, uh, don't forget the silent reader. Don't forget the people who are, are, as you were saying, absorbing the information. Don't get too stuck on the, these, these pissing matches. And because there's lots of other people out there who might not be posting pithy comments on, on Instagram. So I think you're, you're onto something important here, obviously. Um, uh, I wanted to get at this notion and I think you've had to push back in some interviews you've had uh, or in some press coverage say this is not a book about climate change and, and meaning not just about climate change it's about the full span of sustainable progress and um, mike hume who's over in england at cambridge down not too far from you guys at oxford um has a book out that uh i had him on the show last year and uh, he's a longtime climate researcher ipcc author and he's concerned that we're getting to uh there's such a hyper focus on emissions on carbon that it's distracting from the wider picture of vulnerability reduction of uh, all the other problems in the world and if we get and he calls it climatism um, and as i said earlier johan rockstrom this is a slide from his presentation at, at uh, glasgow uh, a couple of years ago it's kind of hard to read but he basically points out there that the vast majority of people in the planet uh, haven't used enough energy to make uh, emissions reductions a top priority for them. They need more energy. And he actually calculated, he, he asserted that, that it's up to the rich world to make deeper cuts in their emissions to justify this, this, this unavoidable temporary surge of uh, emissions uh, in developing countries. So I just wanted to ask you about that. Do you think people are too, how would you characterize people's who are sort of in the visible space around sustainability? Are, 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 is there too much of a focus on, on carbon? Yeah, a bit. And I think it goes actually broader than that. I mean, if you look at what we cover on our own data, um, I primarily cover the environmental stuff. And of course, I think climate change is a massive problem. That's why I spent like so yeah. much of my time, time on it. But, you know, on our own data, you know, you have five million children dying every year from causes that are mostly preventable. You've got half a million dying from malaria. You've got some dying from diarrheal diseases. Um, just to name a few, uh, like small, but well, well, in some sense, small problems among among a much bigger, bigger, longer list. So I think when you step back to look at the, you know, the full spectrum of massive problems that the world faces, um, you cannot possibly come to the conclusion that climate change is the only problem that we face. Right. I think that's really key for how we, I mean, it's a key for how you, you frame priorities, right? Like if you're investing in one area, in some sense, you're possibly taking away um, from another area. So it's how you balance this really broad spectrum of problems and, and, and try to get priorities right there. I mean, I, I completely agree with um, Rockstrom there that, you know, the this is for most people in the world, you know, carbon has just, car carbon emissions is just not a problem because they emit very little. And the, the focus is very much on the richest uh, right. group of the pop of the world to, to drive this. There was actually an interesting uh, substack that I read the other day from from Todd Moss, who is oh, yeah. he he leads the energy for Growth Hub, and the kind of point he was making there is that um, you have this weird effect where 
you know, we're all clapping and cheering some of the poorest countries in the world for celebrating, you know, carbon reductions or or near-term carbon reduction targets. And his key point there was like, they're, they're hardly emitting any carbon whatsoever. And, and if they were to list their priorities in terms of development and, and, and environmental problems going forward, like carbon is so-so on the list, it's almost negligible. Um, and I think this kind of gets to the heart of it. You know, we only tend to view things through this very, you know, climatism lens of it's all about carbon molecules and other problems get pushed to the side. I mean, yeah. one of the, the the points I make in the book, um, I mean, I go into like lots of detail on the, in the climate chapter on how we reduce emissions, what we need to do, how we get off of fossil fuels. But like a final point I make at the end is like one of the key, you know, adaptations or ways to deal with climate change is, is literally lifting people out of poverty and making them right. less vulnerable. And in so many interviews, you know, the interviewer has really been really confused or, or raised their eyebrows about how on earth poverty alleviation is, is any solution to climate change. But it's such a, a vital oh uh, part of the, the, the vulnerability hazard risk equation. And I think we don't put enough emphasis on that. We don't indeed. I've written so many pieces on that formula, the exposure and vulnerability parts of the risk formula, uh, that I can't count them. Um, and, and they don't tend to get read because they're not about carbon <laughs> or or they get resisted. Uh, and there are scientists, uh, Roger Pilkey Jr. has infamously uh, been punished and, and he, he can be very prickly and he but but he's made some very important points about uh, this uh, the trends that we see in disasters um, uh, are more about exposure and vulnerability whether both in rich and poor places like florida a classic example of hurricanes um, and that gets to this third issue i was hoping to raise with you um, which is about the behavioral sciences and the social sciences as they relate to these problems and solutions uh, your book is very much about, you know, listing the concrete, <laughs> concrete or plastic, the physical, you know, manifestations of, uh, of the problem. And at the same time, there's this fundamental need to uh, understand the social science, both in terms of who will absorb data and act on it and just understanding why there are differences sometimes. Have you dug in on that much? On behavioral sciences? Yeah, as they relate to how people perceive or ignore information. Or, right. or... Um, not a ton. I mean, no, I haven't. This is not really my area of expertise. Um, I think I think a really clear thing that, that tends to come through for me, which I might be wrong on, but my, my overall sense is that behavior change is very hard. <laughs> and and yeah. trying to figure out how to change behavior is very, very hard which is why I think many of the solutions I end up leaning on in the book really come from this, how do you create alternatives to what people already have that are more environmentally sustainable and crucially are lower in cost? <laughs> um, okay. And I think, that, I think that it's part of that stems from maybe my pessimism that the behavior change is very difficult. I mean, if you think, for example, uh, I mean, my... I, I, if you look in transport, for example, yeah, I advocate for walking and cycling in public transport, of course, but I'm pessimistic that everyone does that. And therefore we need an alternative to a petrol or diesel car. And the key there is how do you make an electric car 
environmentally sustainable and also cheaper than petrol or diesel. Like the same on, I mean, people have told me that beef gets a really hard deal in the book and it does. Um, I'm pessimistic that, you know, just me showing people the carbon footprint of beef means, you know, they switch their diet to to tofu and, and, and beans. <laughs> um, some people might do that. The majority of the population will not. And therefore we need alternatives to meat, which is like meat, has the texture of meat, tastes like meat, but just doesn't have the animal. So I think I, I think part of my pessimism about behavioral change probably pushes me more towards what people would frame as technological solutions, but importantly, low cost and, and economical technological solutions. Yeah, Jesse Osabel at Rockefeller University back in 1999 wrote an essay. I think the title of the essay was uh, the, the human brain will not change, therefore technology must. And uh, he he drew me into that arena pretty early on, and I'm I'm with you on that. That uh, and that's why I've I've focused on um, innovation, R and D, uh, the role of uh, innovation in agriculture and and energy, of course. Uh, but I think there also is a role for understanding the behavioral end of things uh, better, if only if only to um, if only to get more comfortable with the differences and the dynamics we were sort of buffeted with. And I wanted to show um, something here that relates to that. And maybe it's a, sort of a next book <laughs> or a next project. I don't know, at, at Our World in Data, how, how, how focused are they in working with social scientists um, to uh, find ways, not just to convey the data, but to convene or to have a dynamic around it that gets past uh, the finger pointing. This is the finger pointing to me. I've used this slide before. And, and these are two dynamics. It, it's it's Exxon's fault or or just, oh my God, we're doomed. And the uh, and there you are in the middle. Uh, we've all, many of us have been in that boat. And that's a, a famous 19th century cartoon about a politician uh, going through the, the, the famous rocks and one of the Greek myths. So there, the science is such that this challenged me as a journalist, and I don't know if it challenges you as a data scientist and communicator. Dan Kahane is a behavioral scientist at Yale who, starting in 2009, I began paying attention to his work. And uh, by 2012, 13, he was writing the, doing these studies, empirical work that showed, this headline just really hammered me, uh, climate science literacy unrelated to public acceptance of human-caused global warming. And what he found was that basic science literacy is highest at the two ends of the spectrum. People who are avidly rejecting the science and people who are avidly worried about it. And that led me into this whole writing a lot about this. And, and it sounds very doomist, you know, in its own way, because it, it's sort of like, oh my God, we're, we're, we're doomed information doesn't matter, but it led me to understand something that you just hinted at, which is that most people, if you get, if you back away from the us and them dynamic, you just have a conversation about energy or a conversation about uh, food, you can find all kinds of ways for people who are very divergent culturally to agree on, on basic principles. And I, I don't know. I just think it would be great to, uh, get get that into the discussion. I'd be happy to host a future uh, show with you and or with others at, at Our World in Data. Like Lisa Shipper, who's a, one of the great, uh, a great much published scientist on disasters and climate, 
very focused on loss and damage and everything. And uh, a couple of, a year or two ago on Twitter, um, she posted something really interesting to me. And this relates to the work of our world and data and what might be some gaps to think about filling somehow. Uh, it's a, there's a whole body of social science where they actually talk about what they call qualitative data. And to me as a journalist, I had this show, um, you're seeing kind of a still image from the show. We were, uh, Seth Bornstein, an AP reporter and I were like, what is qualitative data? How do we report on that? That's not data that I understand. But there's a whole bunch of sciences that have this. There, you know, it's when when social scientists do hundreds of surveys or interview, you know, hundred people in a field uh, or in a situation, um, and it doesn't come down to neat graphs and stuff. But it's really important in terms of like assessing vulnerability. There's no good data for vulnerability. I'm, I'm sure you could talk about that too. So, how do we fill those gaps? Is there a way to think about whether I don't mean the next webcast, but is this an issue that you think about in terms of uh, the adoption, the uh, sort of transition dynamics? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like I also wouldn't really have known what qualitative data. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. It was a very jarring word to hear. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, the way our own data, I mean, I think the quantitative data, if we're going to make a differentiation, like tends to be like at the heart of a question of starting, or at least a, the key starting point of a question like how do you use quanti even if it's about opinions for example what do the surveys show us quantitatively about the range of opinions there but i think there is also scope for saying okay like to some extent a little bit what i did in the 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 nuclear the recent nuclear article right, where right, right. this i started with the the broad survey data on just do people think it's low carbon or not and then you can start to delve into why they think that, you know, why would they think that it emits carbon, which I don't know, maybe I'm misframing the qualitative data, but that maybe is like a follow-up of why they start, why they believe the given thing um, as opposed to another, which you can't really necessarily quantify that or put that on a graph, but it's an important, important part of the story of how you then interpret that data and in some sense, and the, the example of the, the, the nuclear low carbon, you need to understand why people who think it's high carbon in order to start to address their concerns around that or try to explain it in a clearer way. So maybe that's how you start to bring these two together. Or maybe how I would, would do that would be to start with the quantitative data and then rely then on the more qualitative data of delving into why people have a, a given belief. Yeah, the, the, the qualitative data come into the actual science more in the context of uh, vulnerability assessments, for example, uh, or, or impacts after a disaster, where you, you'd have to do longitudinal tests of, uh, you know, if a woman was dislocated or if her kids didn't get to go to school for a year, uh, you, you know, it's really hard to find a, a number right. <laughs> for the impact on those children's capacity to be, to grow up to be sustainability scientists right. <laughs> instead of having no job and dying young. So, so that's that's this arena that I think um, the more dialogue there can be, be between or among the uh, the disciplines working from these different vantage points, the better off uh, they'll be. And and it does really help to. Um, and by the way, journalism falls into the same trap because we say, well, how? Wait, I can't report on that. That's like soft. That's soft science. <laughs> so it's an interesting point. Um, then the other the other science that uh, that. I find encouraging, or at least it helps us 
understand the divergent reactions to a book or or study is um, Thomas Elmquist and others starting in 2003, uh, 20 years ago in, in um, Stockholm, did this big multi-author study of what they call um, response diversity as a property you would want in ecosystems that uh, that to it's a it's a metric for resilience. Basically, the more responses that a particular species in an ecosystem has to a stress, whether it's drought or whatever, the more likely it is to be a resilient to change. And and they recently did work taking this forward into the social sphere. There was a paper that came out last year that basically says the societal diversity of responses to a problem, whether it's uh, you know climate impacts or like is actually good it, it's adaptive it means you know in a complicated planet facing a multi-dimensional problem you don't want us all to be bill gates and you don't want us all to be greta thunberg you don't want us all to be andy revkin or hannah or or the other people in this picture so that that that's encouraging and i think that's where your book comes in really handy because it's you hopefully people with all those divergent perspectives will find uh, find it as a resource and also our world and data just uh, also the last thing i yeah, want to ask you yeah. about i mean just on that, no, just yeah, on, about that yeah. yeah just on that like i think i even even when i was trying to think about blurbs for the book i was actually really keen to get people where if you put them in a room they'd have a ton of stuff that they would disagree on and actually they come from very very different places like Bill Gates is an optimist, like he probably frame himself as, as a techno optimist, right. but he's next to people like David Wallace Wells, who wrote, you know, the uninhabitable earth, like one of the, <laughs> right. the scariest book on climate change right. ever. So I actually quite deliberately wanted to try to get like a little bit of diversity of, of people that, you know, even if they, I'm sure there was everyone on that list had something in the book that they disagreed with, but if we can start to build you know, discussions around that data, then then I'd be really happy. And I think that response diversity or, or, or viewpoint diversity was, was what I was actually trying to achieve with that. Right, right. And again, creating a baseline. Here's a baseline of information that you, whatever your position is, can start to have conversations about uh, that can lead to new uh, solutions. So what do you what do you mean when you talk about urgent optimism? Yeah, so when I think, I think um, many people would frame me as an optimist. I probably frame myself now as an optimist, but I think the the risk that that holds is that you know when people hear the word optimism, they assume you mean I just think the world will obviously just get better in the future, and and it, and it, it it's a very thin line between that and complacency of just yeah things will be fine. I'm sure these problems will be solved. We can just sit back and relax, and that's like obviously really not my position i mean my my position with urgent optimism is not this complacent optimism but the notion that i mean the world can be better uh i think there is a pathway to a more sustainable world a world with, with better human progress human better human well-being and i think we have many of the solutions that we need to do that it's about uh turning trying to turn that into reality um which is a very active form of of, of optimism rather than this passive form of optimism that says, yeah, relax, everything will be fine. Yeah, now I want, I want to wedge in a couple of questions. Do you, do you have, can you go a tiny bit past the hour or if, you, if yeah. not, don't worry about yeah. it. No, no, I can't, yeah. Okay, and thank you for your time again. Uh, someone named Dorf on YouTube asks, uh, this is about data, 
quality, I guess. How confident can we be in somewhat optimistic projections of energy emissions, like the ones from IEA, the International Energy Agency? Emissions rose by 1.1% in 23. I, I read stories about India, Indonesia building coal, etc. So what do you, when you were doing your data assessments, how do you test them? Uh, I mean, I think this is uh, a big part of this is that at our own data, we most rely on historical data. Mm -hmm. There are actually very few areas where we publish projections. I think we, we do it for population, for example. So we'll publish the UN's latest population projections, but we actually just don't have emissions projections or energy projections because inevitably nearly all of them will be wrong. <laughs> um, most predictions will be wrong. And, and right. the fact that, that, that most agencies change them every single year will tell you that they're wrong <laughs> because they've updated them since since last year. I mean, right. I think the I think what's the, the, what this is getting at is that there are I know a range of projections that, you know, global emissions might peak in the next few years. And it's not just the IEA. There's a couple of of, of a kind of major agencies saying this. Right. I don't know whether that will be correct or not. I mean, I think the it points out India or Indonesia, they are, I think that's true. I think India's coal use will go up. Indonesia's coal use will go up. I think the big question mark, which will really just massively tilt global emissions one way or the other is China. Um, what China does in the next few years will, will, for me, ultimately determine what happens to global emissions. And, and with China, there are a couple of conflicting stories there. One is building clean energy extremely quickly, um, is really trying to assert uh, dominance in, in clean energy, not just solar and wind, although it's building them really fast, but also in electric vehicles. Right. Um, it's really trying to establish dominance there. So it's very much seeing clean energy as an economic opportunity, which is positive. But the, the, there's the other side of that, that it's still building coal plants. <laughs> um, right. So there's that juxtaposition there. I also did a, a post um, a week or so ago, of, I think when people see that China's building lots of coal plants, they automatically assume that China will obviously be burning lots and lots more coal. Now, that might be correct, but those two things don't necessarily have to go together. It is actually possible that China builds more coal, but those power stations run less and less often as clean right. energy comes on the grid. Um, again, this is speculation. I don't know what China will do, and I don't know what <laughs> global emissions will do. Yeah. Right, uh, and and there's a couple of uh, that that watcher and and Doug, Doug Grant had questions about tipping points. Um, there's a section in the book on this, so and there's a lot of news lately about tipping points. Uh, and you did write about the 1.5 or two degree threshold as being misperceived uh, quite often, as being like a hard line in the sand. How how do you deal with the tipping point question, which is still in that murky arena of things that you can't assess necessarily by looking back at data. No, you can't. And I think that I think the I mean the key point about tipping points is it's very unknown. I mean there's there's known unknowns and there's probably unknown unknowns that we, we right. don't quite know about there. So it's complex. I mean I think there are I mean I'm basing this on the latest literature on on what scientists uh, including Rotscrum that we, we discussed earlier are saying about these these potential tipping points. I mean, there are, there are a couple that we think are in possibly in the 1.5 to 2 degrees range. Um, I think the I think I think it's important to to try to get a balance there of of 
acknowledging the seriousness of that of these tipping points without falling into this notion that we get flung into this runaway warming scenario which is not what scientists project mean by tipping points so there's stuff like arctic sea ice i think right. by 2050 the arctic sea it will be summer in the summer will be free of, of arctic sea ice which will have an albedo impact now the, the the quantification of that is that we think globally that might increase temperatures by 0 0.1 0 0.15 degrees celsius there's the Amazon tipping point uh, of, of, of tipping more into a savanna-like state than a rainforest state. Um, so there are a range of these tipping points that we think could be in the 1.5 to 2 degrees range, and they make our job much, much harder. Again, the, the, the permafrost free feedback, you get carbon release from the permafrost, it makes right. our job much, much harder. Um, but there's a differentiation between that and, you know, you know, it's too late, we're flung into this runaway state, and there's nothing we yeah. can do about it. Right. And this gets back to the systemic analysis you mentioned earlier, the section on deforestation and a lot of my writing over the years. You know, I wrote a book about the Amazon in 1990. It is about fragmentation and road building and what leads, what that produces. And if you have a less fragmented forest, it can tolerate a lot more change and other factors too. So those, that's the key thing, looking at those multiple dimensions. And I'm glad again that the the book does that. I think we should call it because you're in supper time mode, I think, over there. And I'd, ha I'd happily have you back to talk about other issues. Uh, population is raised in the book. Um, I've done a couple of sessions on that. I've written a huge amount. And you did mention the 10 billion figure. I don't think we're going to get to 10 billion in 2016. I want to clarify on the population. Yeah, when yeah. I mention it, I'm, and then I'm in the camp that population is not the problem. I just want to clarify yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, I, the book kind of makes that point, too. I, but I just saw the 2060, 10 billion. I, I think that's probably old news. Uh, it'd be less than 10 billion. And, and I also don't think depopulation is a problem either. But that's that's for another day. This has been great. And I'm really glad one last feature of what you're doing uh, at our uh, World in Data is the teaching hub. My wife is a longtime science teacher. And then she spent the last six years of her uh, working life um, teaching teachers how to teach sustainability. Uh, how to incorporate things into existing lesson plans so kids can kind of get their head around these concepts. And I think the more they, they have, they look at your, your work. Uh, and I'm hoping the book somehow, is, is there any effort yet to get it into curricula or will that come down the line? Yeah, not yet. I mean, I've had feedback from teachers saying that, you know, they have started to incorporate, you know, aspects of the book into their, their work or assigned it for, for reading. And actually, yeah. our data more broadly, like we have the teaching hub there. I'd say it's a under-nurtured area of our work. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we, we also just know that the teachers are, are bringing the work on our own data into their own teaching and probably doing a much better job than yeah. we are at developing resources because they are much more creative on, on teaching aspects than we are. Um, and even better yeah. would be if kids just find it and have their own capacity to translate th this data into clever things on on media platforms that you and I don't even understand yet. Right. So so this is great. Thanks again, uh, Hannah Ritchie, for being on Sustain What. And I, I really would love to have you back, uh, perhaps with someone like Lisa Shipper to talk about how we can integrate softer data that really matter for sustainability into some of these projections, too. But the book is a must read, obviously, uh, uh, not the end of the world. Uh, and, and I hope people follow your sustainability by numbers.com substack. Um, thanks again. This will be 
archived and available for anyone to share after the fact. And people can look at that distracting scrolling bar at the bottom to get in touch with me for, with questions or further show ideas. This is Andy Revkin uh, up in uh, Wabanaki Territory in Maine, uh, signing off for the day with Hannah Ritchie and, uh, in the UK. And thank you again for coming on and good luck with this. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, big fan of your work. Thank you. Great.